Isaiah chapter fu- chapter 1. Steve Mansfield is going to read that whole chapter. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. Sorry, yeah, manger. But Israel does not know my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be, be- why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste when, when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in the vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us some survivors, we would soon have become Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the word of God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitudes of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you become, sorry, when you come to appear before me, you who has asked, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts, stop bringing meaningless offerings. You incense, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations I cannot bear your evil assemblies your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts my soul hates they've become a burden to me I am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands in prayer I will hide my eyes from you even if you offer many prayers I will not listen your hands are full of blood wash and make yourselves clean take your evil deeds out of my sight Stop doing wrong, learn to do right. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, You'll be devoured by the sword, for for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, 
the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I'll turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all impurities. I'll restore your judges as the days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder, and his work a spark. Both will burn together, with no one to quench the fire. Well, as most of you know, my name's Steve, and I work with the university ministry here in Port Macquarie. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm starting a series on the book of Isaiah with my uni students, uh, and Scott has very kindly agreed to let me try things out on you. Uh, you're kind of like the guinea pigs. Um, lot of will be able to tell you how it works out when we, you know, kind of as I rehash it later. Um, so look, this week and next week, it's my great privilege to dive with you into the book of Isaiah. Um, it's an incredible book. I don't know if you've read it recently. It's full of amazing truths from our God and about our God. Uh, it's quoted all over the New Testament, more than any other book except for the Psalms. Uh, and it massively shapes our understanding of who Jesus is and why He came. That said, if we only interact with the book of Isaiah for what it tells us about Jesus, then we miss heaps. It's full of amazing truth from our God and about our God. Part of the problem we have is that it's a really complex book. It's theologically as dense as Paul's letter to the Romans, um, but while Romans is 16 chapters long, Isaiah is 66 chapters long. It's more than four times longer and 98% of it is poetry. Um, so look, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that really this week and next week, we're just going to scratch the surface of Isaiah. It's an enormous book. Um, this week, we're going to look at chapter one and a little bit of the story that's going on around the time. Um, and then next week, we're going to listen in as Isaiah has a conversation face to face with God. And my prayer is that these two talks uh, will whet your appetite to go away and devour Isaiah for yourself. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, thanks for your word to us. Uh, thank you that there is so much of it uh, and there's so much to digest. Uh, Lord, as we uh, dig into the book of Isaiah, please speak to us. Uh, please help us to hear your voice today. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, Isaiah 1 verse 1. You might find it helpful to have a Bible open. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, I just mentioned what a big book this is and straight away Isaiah is showing us that. He calls this book a vision, the vision. You know, it's, it's a single vision, it's not a series of visions, it's a single vision. Um, and this singular vision that he had occurred during the reign of not one, but four kings of Judah. Um, that's a period of about 110 years. 
Now, I mean, we can probably assume that he was born during the reign of the first one, King Uzziah, and that he died sometime in the reign of the fourth one, King Hezekiah, but even so, that's a prophetic period of at least 50 years. That's a long time. So, Isaiah had a singular vision that spanned more than 50 years. No wonder he wrote a 66-chapter book, right? Um, Now, what's it about? Well, it's a vision that concerns Judah and Jerusalem. Um, Nearly two centuries earlier, God's nation of Israel had split into two warring factions. The northern part, uh, which kept the name Israel, uh, and the southern part, which took the name Judah. And the, the people in Judah were ruled by the sons of David, and they held on to Jerusalem, the capital city. So, Isaiah's singular vision concerns God's people living in the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, and it's during the reign of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the sons of David. And one of the main themes, certainly the one we're going to explore today, is the question, who will you trust? Who are you going to look to to save you? Um, Or as um, it was famously put in the 1980s, who are you going to call? Will God's people look to Him to save them? Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people does not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Who will God's people trust? Well, not God they've rebelled against Him. Isaiah's vision begins with the Lord of hosts calling upon all of creation, the heavens and the earth, to listen as He relates His charge against His people. They're dumber than donkeys. They're more obtuse than oxen. Even those brute beasts know their master, but God's people do not know. He's like their father. He's reared them by hand. He's made them a nation. He's kept His promises to them. And they have rebelled against Him. They've refused to know Him. They've turned their backs on Him. They've sought meaning, power and salvation through all sorts of evil practices instead, including wrongdoing, corruption and idolatry. And we see these throughout the chapter. Um, Wrongdoing, for example, we see in verse 16... Actually, I'll go from the last line of verse 15. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Again and again in His law, God had commanded His people, defend the fatherless, look after widows. It's not happening. In fact, 
the city of peace has become the city of blood, where widows' houses are devoured, where the fatherless are taken advantage of. Judah and Jerusalem should have been a place of peace and safety and security, especially for those who could not care for themselves. But it wasn't. It wasn't. The city had become a place of wrongdoing. We see corruption as well. Look at verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Jerusalem was supposed to be a holy city, the centre of a holy nation, but instead it's become a place of impurity and defilement and corruption. Faithfulness has been replaced with prostitution, both literally and also as God's people prostitute themselves to any other God. Justice has been replaced with murder, where once the city under Solomon had been filled with silver... Now, there's only dross. Dross is the rubbish bit you throw away after you've refined the silver. You don't waste good wine by adding water to it. The only wine that's left in Jerusalem is the rubbish stuff, the stuff you have to water down to make it palatable. Everything in the city is so ruined and diluted and watered down, none of the original goodness is left. Worst of all, the rulers of the city have embraced corruption. They keep company with thieves, they love bribes, and they have no interest in hearing the case of a widow. The purity of God's people and of God's city have become utterly corrupt, wrongdoing, corruption, and worst of all, idolatry. They've embraced idolatry. Instead of trusting the God of their fathers to save them, in Isaiah's day, God's people were turning to any and every alternative God that they could find. The theme runs right throughout the book. Um, Isaiah has some of the most memorable words about idolatry. It's this hilarious mocking bit where he describes the stupidness of cutting down a tree, taking half of it and carving a God and worshipping it, and then taking the other half and burning it. It's stupid, but... God's people are turning to any and every God that they can find. And we see it here in this chapter. Look at verse 29. And this is part of God's judgment upon His people. He says, You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. You'll be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The sacred oaks and the gardens were the places that you would go to worship Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal was the god of crops and ravens, and Ashtaroth was the fertility goddess of the Canaanites. God's people have chosen them. They've embraced idolatry. They've sought meaning, power and salvation through wrongdoing, through corruption, and worst of all, through idolatry. They keep failing to trust their God, and they choose to trust other things instead. And this charge keeps coming up again and again throughout the book. Who will God's people trust to save them? They trust idols, they trust heroes, they look to political alliances, they even try finances. 
They'll do anything and everything except trust the Lord their God. And the question this forces upon us is, are we any different? When life gets hard, where do you look? What are you tempted to trust instead of your God? Where do you look for meaning and power? Where do you go for salvation? Or at least to feel a little bit better when life is hard? I suspect that for many of us, finances is one place that we go to feel secure. When life feels insecure, the financial security is kind of appealing, isn't it? I mean, numbers, they're there in black and white. You can tell what they say. And even better, there's interest. Uh, There's dividends, even capital gain. (sighs) Capital gain. Look, finances offer a lot of comfort. They promise so much. Something I've noticed over the last few years is that the more money you have, the greater your insecurity. Um, Because the more you have, the more you stand to lose. Many people hope for security through a relationship, uh, perhaps longing for a significant other who will make them feel secure, or loading way too much expectation onto a relationship that they already have, uh, expecting that their significant other can bear the strain of meaning, power and salvation. That's a weight no person can bear. Don't ask someone to be that for you. They can't. When life gets hard, it's easy to turn to things like pornography or alcohol or other drugs, even exercise for the endorphin rush, to hope that those kinds of things are going to ease the burden, even just for a little while. Some people even try working excessively long hours in the hope of feeling in control of something. In so many ways, we're just like the people of Judah and Jerusalem. We look anywhere and everywhere for meaning, power and salvation. We're tempted to trust everything instead of our God. Who will God's people trust? Where will they look for salvation? The problem with God's people in Isaiah's day and in our day, is that we look for salvation in all the wrong places. And in the face of this rebellion, God gave Isaiah two promises, that's four, two promises. Um, One for the near future and one for the far future. Uh, Let's look at the far future one first. Uh, It's kind of a minor note that that, um, is not massively loud in this first chapter, uh, but by the end of the book, it comes to dominate so that there's almost nothing else going on. Um, We can see in verse 18, this is the, the note of the far future. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In the days of Isaiah, the people of Judah and Jerusalem were drenched in the blood of the innocent. But one day, God promises they will be washed completely clean, white like snow, clean as new wool. The sinful, guilty, rebellious people of the present who failed again and again to trust their God, one day they'd be washed clean. Their sin will be no more. They'll be pure. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Even if your sins stain you red as crimson, one day they shall be like wool. 
but how? How would that happen for the people of Isaiah's day? Well, this is the promise of the near future. The rebellious people of God will be washed clean through God's purifying judgment. The stain of sin would be swept away as the Lord of hosts rinses them with His wrath. Have a look at verse 24. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, I will get relief from from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I'll restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Jerusalem, the faithful city, has become a place of corruption and iniquity. So, God promised that in the near future, He would avenge Himself upon His enemies. He would turn His purifying judgment upon His own people. He would burn away the dross, burn away the impurities, get rid of the corruption and restore justice. The book of Isaiah breaks into two halves. Um, Each half deals with a national crisis used by God for this very purpose to purify His people. It forces the question upon them, who will you trust? In the first half of the book, which leads up to chapter 37, it builds towards the Assyrian crisis, when Sennacherib, the emperor of Assyria, marched his armies into the land. His armies destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, they sacked the capital city and deported everybody. Um, They also invaded Judah, Uh, they destroyed the major cities of Judah uh, and they laid siege to the capital, Jerusalem. Actually, why don't you flick over to Isaiah 36, let's read a bit of the story. Um, The whole first half of Isaiah builds up to this, Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36, verse 1. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish, which is another major city in Judah, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to meet him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. This is the commander of the Assyrian army acting as the prophet of Assyria. Thus says the king. And his words bring our question into focus. Who will God's people trust? Where will they look for salvation? This is what he said. On what are you basing this assurance of yours, this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. 
on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, well, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord Himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Who will God's people trust to save them? Will they trust their alliance with Egypt? Well, Egypt is like a splintery walking stick. If you try and lean on it, it's going to stab you in the hand. Who will God's people trust to save them? Will they trust their army? The Assyrian commander laughs at their army. He offers them 2,000 horses to even the odds a little, but only if they can find some riders for them. Assyria thinks, their military, uh, thinks the military of Judah is a joke. Who will God's people trust to save them? Will they trust the Lord their God? Will the commander of the Assyrian army claims that the Lord God of Israel told him to invade? And he's right. He's speaking the truth. Isaiah has been saying this for generations to God's people. It's the Lord God who would send Assyria into the land to attack His people. Assyria is the club of the Lord, coming to smash His people. So, where will God's people look for salvation? Will they try politics and keep trusting their alliance with Egypt? Will they try their luck with military might? Or will they trust the God who's brought their enemies upon them? The king of Assyria offers them an alternative. Look down at verse 16. Don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Thus says the God-King of Assyria, surrender, come over to me. Your God has promised you a land of milk and honey? I've got something better for you. I can give you a land of bread and wine, Surrender. Worship me. I'll look after you. I'll give you what you need. I'll provide for you into eternity. It's the exact same offer that Satan always makes to God's people, isn't it? Surrender. Come over to my side. I've got something better to give you. Where will God's people look for salvation? Who will they trust to save them? Will they trust their allies? Will they trust their army? Will they trust their enemy? 
or will they trust their God? Assyria is the instrument of God's purifying judgment. God is the one who brought Assyria into the land, and He's done it to force the question upon them, who will they trust? Where will they look for salvation? This is God's purifying judgment, and there is no escape. The stain of sin would be swept away as the Lord of hosts rinses them with His wrath. They would find salvation on the other side of judgment. They would face suffering and then receive glory. Isaiah shows us the problem with God's people. They fail to trust the Lord their God and they trust anything and everything else instead of Him. And so God gave them two promises, a near future of purifying judgment and a far future when they would be purified of all unrighteousness. Salvation on the other side of judgment suffering, and then glory. And this is a pattern that God continues. We see it again and again throughout the Bible. Take Jesus, for example. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup of wrath away from me. But not my will, but yours be done. If we sinners were to be saved, Jesus could not avoid the cup of wrath. Jesus faced the purifying judgment of God on sin in order that He might bring salvation to us. He went through suffering and then received glory. The pattern's the same as in Isaiah. Salvation exists on the other side of judgment, suffering and then glory. Now, by the time the words of Isaiah were understood as prophecy, it was already too late. The Assyrian army had already invaded. They'd destroyed the northern kingdom, they'd sacked the cities, they'd laid siege to Jerusalem. God's people could not escape. The purifying judgment had come. But they could choose how to respond. Would this invasion cause them to repent, to stop doing wrong, to learn to do right, to choose to be willing and obedient? Or would they continue in rebellion, continue opposing the Lord their God, and so be devoured by the sword? Would this fiery judgment lead to purification or unquenchable destruction? And the pattern holds for you too. The pattern is exactly the same. We face the exact same choice. When the fiery judgment comes, will you repent? Will you repent? Or will the sword devour you? Consider these words from James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God sends all sorts of trials and challenges our way. If you haven't realized that yet, just wait. It's coming, it won't be long now. And just as God's people in Judah couldn't avoid the invasion, we can't avoid hardships and trials because they're sent by our God. 
There is no escaping God's purifying judgment. Now, why does our God send us these inescapable trials? He does it to test our faith. He does it to develop our perseverance. He does it to make us mature and complete, just the same as He did for Judah. God sent Assyria to force the question upon His people, who will you trust? And He sends various trials of many kinds to ask us the exact same question, who will you trust? Where will you look for meaning and salvation? Will you keep clinging to Jesus? Will He be your refuge through the fire of judgment? Will you cling to His sacrificial death in your place? Or will you look for some other Saviour, some other source of comfort? Will you search for another refuge? Hear the promise of our God from James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Please, Heavenly Father, make us mature and complete. Please, Father, enable us to persevere through trials and continue in faith. Please, Father, cause us to cling ever more tightly to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.